Before we start and get going with Daniel chapter 2, as you can see on screen, I just want us to pray. And I want to start with a prayer. In my preparation, I was a bit surprised. Um, Some of you might have heard of John Calvin, who was a reformer in the 16th century. And um, one of the things I read was his commentary. And each time before he started actually telling his students what we have today as the commentary, he would start with a prayer. And I love the prayer, and I want to start and pray this prayer and other things for us before we actually listen to God's word. So let's do that. John Calvin said, Grant us, O Lord, to be occupied in the mysteries of thy heavenly wisdom, and with true progress and piety to thy glory and edification. And with Luke and the gospel, I want to say, Lord Jesus, would you come and open the mind of our understanding that we would comprehend your word. We all come, Lord, with different thoughts in our minds. We've come from different places, things that have happened in this week, in this month, and in our lives. And we understand it all has an impact. But even with the disciples, we remember that you can open our minds so that we would understand, even if there are obstacles for us to hear you, even if there are things within us that are dragging us away from your word, you can take us to that and help us to understand. So Lord, we bow the knee before you this morning and say, would you help as only you can by your spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's hear God's word in Daniel chapter 2. Thank you. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, You shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. I know for certain that you would gain time, because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream. And I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. 
It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this reason the king was angry and very furious, and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then, with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Eriah, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Eriach, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Eriach made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. Therefore Daniel went to Ariach, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Eriach quickly brought Daniel before the king. I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? The secret which the king has demanded the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image, this great image whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, 
its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while the stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand. And has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men. But they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Asteroids hitting the earth, ice glaciers are melting and drowning all life. Tsunamis are racing, believe it or not, Maxine, in gigantic walls of water that produce such unstoppable destruction that people die, things are destroyed. 
What about nuclear explosions that kill all of life? And in 2023, this year that we are living, artificial intelligence or wildfires are really ravaging our land as seen in Europe. We've got it now in Hawaii and Australia and other places. All of this could wipe out humanity. It's basically the end of the world. You see, the narrative is basically all the same. We all die. We die, we die, we die. Hollywood most probably has made a movie in connection with one or several of these themes if you've been watching. But I want to say to you that according to the Bible, all of history is in the hands of God. Not in a movie feeding off people's fears. And it's not just history about the present or the future, it's all under God's control. And so history and God, as we just heard in Daniel 2, is really much the focus of this chapter. But first I want to do a bit of a background on the book itself. Daniel writes to the exiles from Judah who are living in Babylon, and it's about the 6th century B.C. He's also writing to the people of God throughout history, in other words, you and I today. And so the book really focuses on the history through three different lenses. The first lens that we have here is the lens of the present. So this is in Daniel's day during the reigns of the Babylonians king. In, in Daniel's day, he saw two Babylonians kings come and go. It's also in the days of the Persian king from about 605 BC. Then we have the lens of the future kingdoms. In some cases, which I think is so amazing about God, through Daniel, he prophetically describes and tells things to happen 600 years before it actually takes place. And then we have the third lens, which is really the remote lens of the start of God's kingdom through the Son of Man from about 30 A.D., And so just as part of our background, it's important to understand that Daniel is a very unique book because it's a combination of court stories and apocalyptic writing. When last did you hear a word like that in church? You see, apocalypse is really a genre that is a biblical writing style that reveals God's actions and coming judgment in very much symbolic language. And in this chapter and in the book, Daniel is very much the main character. It's about Daniel. And so just a little bit about his history, because I think you and I should put ourselves in the history of this man and what he went through so that we would understand. He was born into an unknown royal family, was taken to Babylon as a young man. We think he was 16 years old. There are children sitting among us here. Think of a 16-year-old uprooted from his family, and actually he's moved to another country. And so he was part of the first deportation that actually went from Judah, as in Jerusalem, the land of Israel, all the way to Babylon. Thus he lives in exile with thousands of other exiles in a foreign land. And so this is the time of King Nebuchadnezzar, as we heard, where he has the statue dream, And we think that Daniel was about maybe two years old, about 18, and hence you can hear the young voice speaking 
in that audio recording that we have, it was about an 18-year-old who was speaking to the king prophetically all these things. And so we have the wise men called by King Nebuchadnezzar, and he says to them, interpret the dream for me. Now it's fascinating, Daniel is at pains to initially and later on include us a list of who was in this wise men group. We have, for example, magicians. Now I'm not talking about the kind of tricks that are played, Carla, with the cards, where we play tricks on one another. It's not that kind of magician, okay? We're talking about a different kind of magician. There was also astrologers, there were sorcerers, the Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Now, these people were believed, incredibly, to be able to communicate with the spirit world. They were ones that actually could not just communicate with the spirit world, but with the gods at that point in time to declare the gods' will to the king and the people. And so this was a declaration of so-called divine wisdom that they were imparting to the people and the king. And the king obviously relied on them to actually help him, firstly to understand what is the God's will, and then secondly, not just that, but how does he supposed to go ahead with making decisions in life? What are the God's wisdom concerning this? How is he supposed to live out that which is their will? And I'm sure you noticed in the recording that we listened to in the scripture, the king actually tests the wise men by not telling them the dream. Quite fascinating. You see, if they could tell him the dream he knew, then he could believe that they were accurately giving him the interpretation that he did not know. From the scripture, we hear that they failed with the dream in terms of telling him what it is, and also going further by saying, what is the interpretation? They couldn't do either of that. And so what does the king do? He threatens them with violent dismemberment. History tells us the king was far worse than that. He did horrific things. So this was not an idle little boast to an 18-year-old and other wise men. He was well known for the fact that he can be incredibly cruel. So Daniel asked the king to give him time to actually find the dream and interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar agrees. And then Daniel calls for a prayer meeting. And verse 18, we have him call his friends together and he says to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so that they would not be executed. Don't know about you, but hunger and the threat of your life can sometimes change minds to be very focused because now we've got to actually find out how we're going to live and not die. But a great thing that they do, they get together and they start praying. Later that same night, God wonderfully reveals a secret in the night vision to Daniel, and so Daniel actually knows what happened in the dream and therefore the interpretation. Daniel's response to God, to me, is wonderful. He actually unpacks the character of God in incomparable glory, in my opinion. And so he says, praise the name of God forever and ever. For he has all wisdom and power. And so we have here worship gushing forth and gratitude gushing forth from Daniel. 
as he realizes what the Lord has given him. And why does he worship and give thanks? Well, firstly, for God's eternal wisdom and might. That's what we have in verse 20. God's wisdom is defined in this context as his perfect divine judgment and insight arising from his infinite knowing. Just think about that for a second. You see, Mark Oliveira shows us that God possesses wisdom as part of his character, as part of who God is. So the question then becomes, how is God's wisdom revealed in Daniel chapter 2? It's revealed in the knowledge of the dream. Additionally, God possesses might and omnipotence, says verse 20. And omnipotence refers to God's unconditioned power to do that which he wills in accordance with his nature. I love this, what Justin Strata says to us here, because he's saying nothing outside of himself limits God. Chew on that for a second. Nothing. The Bible says in another way, it says he is all powerful. Secondly, Daniel worships and gives thanks for God's governing of history. In verse 21, we have he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. This to me shows God's great power in that he governs all is under the mighty hand of God, Eric. None of us can escape that. His control of times and seasons is referred to the when and the, d- the duration. I don't know about you, but when I go through things, I'm wondering, when is this going to change? And how long is this going to take? Or is that just me? <laughs> Thank you, Becky. Few of you honest. There we go. Trudy, I hear you as well. But hear what God's word says. His control of times and seasons refers to the when. God decides when. It refers also to the duration, how long it's going to take. And so God is sovereign over human history. And how is that sovereignty worked out upon earth? Well, God's sovereignty, as we look at this verse, actually extends to the promotion and the demotion of kings. In a way, if I've got to put it in today's language, he controls all governments. Did you mean the con- our conservative party? Did you just say re- our prime minister, Mr. Sunak? Are you talking about the opposition? Yep. God's in charge of all. All governments, it's clear and according to scripture. So, for example, King Nebuchadnezzar seems to have all the power as he rules over Babylon. You can go and look it up how huge the empire was at that point in time. And he also ruled over Judah because he invaded Jerusalem. He conquered it and took the people captive. But Daniel in this verse says, God removes kings and raises up kings. So the point really simply is the king rules at God's behest. Daniel worships and gives thanks also for, in verse 22, Because he reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness 
and light dwells with him. So we have here God's omniscience or foreknowledge, and it's apparent since nothing is really hidden from God. I like what Daryl Aaron says on God's omniscience. He cannot learn anything because he has always known everything. I love that about God. I can't tell you anything new, Lord. You already know. You're not like us or latest artificial intelligence that needs to learn. He knows it all. You see, in his omniscience, he determines all future events, all that can and will happen. And so thus it proves that he alone is the true God compared to all others. In the background, this is not the major portion of the scripture, but in the background, a secondary theme is who is God? Who reigns? Who rules? Is it the gods of Babylon and the wise men's gods, or is it the true God? Thank you, Trudy. And so the reality is, that's what he's saying. He alone is the one who actually is in charge in all of this. 16th century reformer John Calvin wrote, he appoints future events and governs the world by his will, allowing nothing to happen by chance or without his direction. You see, since history is under his control, according to the text, it is his secret. It is not the secret of the wise men. The wise men were called because the king says, I got a secret. I want you to tell what's in my mind, what's the dream I had, what is the secret? And brutally he says, you don't listen, this is your future, death. But God is declaring emphatically, uh, he's the one who knows the secrets. He instigated the dream for King Nebuchadnezzar, and he alone has those secrets, not the so-called wise men who were called in. You see, what's the reality in life? Humans are confused, unsure, and wonder because darkness is the end of our sight. However, he created the darkness. Scripture says he knows what is in that very darkness. And so really in Scripture, yeah, we have this beautiful truth that light actually dwells with him. And I want to go on to what Robert Anderson says. In contrasting light and darkness, it suggested that perfection and completeness of divine knowledge. You see, God's omniscience is all-encompassing. And maybe if I put it another way, it is infinite. How can I illustrate this? Well, I want you to imagine with me. What if I drew a circle like I've got on the screen there, and I take Daniel, and I put him in the circle? God knows everything about Daniel. What if I go beyond the circle and say, in Daniel's day, I say Daniel in the circle, and then I go and take the whole of Babylon, go and look it up online. It was an old city in Iraq. It was an amazing city. I take the whole city, and I put it inside the circle. God knows everything about that city as well. Well, what if I go beyond that and actually say far more than that? And I say, I put the earth. I put the universe. I put whatever, and the fact is God knows all there is to know. 
I had a pastor once in South Africa say this profound thing to me. Science is but the discovery of God's wisdom. I love science. I enjoy science. I watch Wild Earth and Planet Earth and all these programs. It puts my wife asleep because she says David Attenborough just does it for her. Seriously, John, she watches David and she falls asleep. I'm watching the program. I'm like, isn't this amazing? But what does science do? It discovers God's wisdom. It was all along there, but we come along and we go, we've made this discovery. Isn't this fantastic? We're moving forward, and truly we are, but we are discovering God's wisdom. The point is, I can basically never draw a large enough circle to include all of God's knowledge. It is not possible. Then Daniel worships and he gives thanks for the God of my fathers, you have given me wisdom and might. I love the intimacy here that Daniel shows because that phrase, God of my fathers, is a connection just not with himself and his forefathers, it's through time and ultimately with God. But saying there's an intimate relationship that we share, we have a history together. But this title for God was well known to Israel's descendants even before Moses heard the words, I am, in Exodus chapter 3. You can go and look it up yourself. You see, to me, this title, I think, suggests an acknowledgement that God is acting in his faithfulness to his character as he is revealed through time to Israel. And they are living off that in their minds by saying, This is who he is, the God of my fathers. He knows us and he cares about us. And so God generously gives his wisdom and power to Daniel. But what is that wisdom that Daniel is given? It is not, if I've got to pick James at the back there, uh, because I know you can take a joke. It's not as if we look at James and say to James, James is so wise. That's not the wisdom we're talking about. In other words, a quality that James has. That's not what we're talking about. Clearly, it was not because Daniel was a man who had great talent, great intelligence, great learning, or maybe he just had incredible experience, and therefore he brought it to bear to that which the king wanted to know. Rather, Daniel possesses knowledge about history in the present and in the future. Remember, I said 600 years in some cases before it happens Because God, who alone is the deciding factor of all history, has chosen to give it to him. That's why he has it. And so with God's wisdom, Daniel interprets the dream. Now the significant dream gives us world history through four successive Gentile kingdoms from verse 33 to 34. First, he explains a statue of a man composed of four types of materials. We have the head of the statue that was pure gold. We have its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet were partly of iron and partly of baked clay. According to chapter 2, Daniel immediately identifies King Nebuchadnezzar as his head of gold. So we know that. And therefore, by reference, because that's the way they understood it those days, the king and his kingdom, there's an equal sign there. 
If you speak about the one, you're talking about the other. If you talk about the kingdom, you're talking about the king as well. So that's what he firstly starts off with. But in chapter 2, he does not identify the rest of the materials. You have to read a bit broader, so that's why context in Scripture is so important. If you go to chapter 7 and 8, he actually tells us what do those materials really mean. And so just to say where I'm coming from, I'm following an evangelical position that actually goes far back to the first one we know in history that's been written down to the first century Bible translator Jerome that also had this opinion. So let's go and look at what that is. The gold we know is Babylon. But the silver was the Medo-Persian empire. Come, according to scripture, and gone. Thirdly, the bronze was Greece. Remember, 600 years before it even happened, came and is gone. And then iron and clay refers to the Roman Empire again, came and is gone. So we know historically that is correct. Daniel then mentions the stone or rock in verse 34 to 35 and verse 45 that represents God's kingdom and the Son of Man of chapter 7. In chapter 2, he doesn't speak about the Son of Man. But in chapter 7, it comes out that he starts speaking about the Son of Man. For us who follow Christ, our ears should be starting to go, oh, I know where this is going. You see, Daniel's Son of Man is Jesus Christ of the Gospels. And so in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the stone's scope is worldwide. And it can be seen by the fact that it grew to a huge mountain that filled the earth. In other words, what we're talking about here is universal dominion not just in a little land in England it's universal dominion similarly Jesus speaks of the kingdom being like a mustard seed that grows remember what he said and becomes this huge there we go thank you GD and he becomes this huge tree that's the idea that we have here exactly the same and so the kingdom of God was present in Jesus ministry and so the kingdom began Definitely with his death, we can say at about 30 AD. And since then, the kingdom of God's been growing. If you think about it to Jesus' 11 disciples, to what are we today? 2.3 billion people, nearly a third of the world's population, apparently say they are Christian. 11 to 2.3 billion. The stone became a mountain. The mustard seed became the tree. Do you follow me? Good. You see, in the dream, the stone will have exceptional power. For it will destroy the kingdoms of this world. It strikes the feet and destroys the kingdom. So when is this supposed to take place? During the days of the final kingdom, symbolized by the feet, that's what I'm saying, the statue is destroyed. In other words, all evil kingdoms will end decisively, completely, not progressively. We're not talking about a slow incremental thing. We're talking about a decisive moment when the stone strikes the feet and everything crumbles. And it's the end of that. Now, I've got to be honest with you. In identifying the feet or toes, if you would... It's kind of a hot topic to this day. I didn't realize how much until one commentary after another I picked up, and this one says it's, I'm going to make it with colors, it's green. This one says, no, it's red. This one says, no, it's black. 
This one says it's blue. This one says it's pink with green stripes. And on and on I could go. Various opinions, not much unanimity in terms of what it is exactly. So where does this really leave us? I'm going to give you two opinions. At the end, I'll tell you which is mine, just so that I want to be fair in general. You see, some see this as an allusion to the old Roman Empire that came and is gone. That's one way of looking at it. The others see this as part of the image to be symbolic of an empire that will arise in the last days. In other words, I'm taking it, talking about some point far in the future. I don't know when it is. That is connected in some way to ancient Rome. So the kingdom in view is Christ's physical reign on earth, consummated immediately following his second advent and coming. Christ came the first time, the word became flesh, we came to know him, he lives within us by his Holy Spirit, hallelujah, can you agree with me? Thank you very much. And the truth is, one day he will come back again as the word declares, in other words, the second advent and coming. Therefore, Christ reigning in his kingdom on earth does not follow the fourth kingdom of Rome. There's an indefinite gap of time between the demise of the fourth kingdom of Rome and the feet and toes. Now, this latter point is the point that I hold to, and that's just my opinion. You see, the fact is, irrespective of opinions now or commentaries that give us all these different opinions and colors, like I explained earlier, Christ has initiated his kingdom. But the kingdom of God is also future hope when it will fully be consummated. In other words, in its richest sense, at Christ's second advent, when he comes in glory to judge both the living and the dead. So in some ways, if I can put it this way crudely, the kingdom of God can be seen to arrive in successive stages or installments. King Nebuchadnezzar then responds to Daniel's interpretation with truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. God of gods is really equivalent to the greatest or the mightiest gods of all gods. You see, the king does recognize God's sovereignty, but it's only temporary. The very next chapter, chapter 3, what does he do? We beckon into idolatry. Here's a statue you will worship. So, so much for that really making an impact on him. You see, sadly, the truth remains, despite what I've read some people say, the king was a believer in many gods. Today we would say he's a polytheist. In other words, he worships lots of different gods. That does not change. And yes, he does say he is Lord of kings, meaning God, the sovereign one, is even the Lord of me, the king. But he doesn't acknowledge that in actual faith and believing and living for this true God. Consequently, what can we actually apply from this to our lives today? Here's a tough question to myself, to you, and to those of you online. Is Daniel saying world history is actually determined by God when it comes to governments of this world? I do think Daniel is giving us a determined outlook on history. In theology, it's called soft determinism, meaning God is the primary cause when it comes to governments. Humans, you and I, are a secondary cause. 
And human free choice is therefore compatible with the Bible's teaching on God's sovereignty, his omniscience, and omnipotence. However, as Mark Pretorius says, the Bible's worldview reveals a strong conception of divine sovereignty over the world and human affairs, even as it presumes human freedom and responsibility. John, you are muddying the water. Now I'm giving you the scriptures. There's things that's held in tension here. This is not a mathematical formula that it always works like this. There are truths that stand forever. In other words, God is sovereign, but you and I have also human freedom, and we are responsible within that. So yes, there is tension in the scripture. The tension exists between God being in control and humans, you and I, having free will and being accountable. But crucially, God's sovereignty does not contradict people's moral and ethical accountability to him. That's what I see if I look at the Genesis to Revelation picture in Scripture. Now, fascinating, Daniel actually goes and he gives us examples of both how sovereignty and human accountability actually play out. It's in chapter 11 and chapter 9. I can't get into that today, but go and read it as it actually explains incredible and immense truth. Secondly, since God rules over nations, governments, and individuals, do we have any role to play in his grand plans? Sometimes when we see the big Maxine of what God does, we think, little old me, what am I doing in this? Is he really anything he really wants me to do? What can I do? And so it raises the question of human free will and choice. To me, I think John Golden Gay actually gives us a bit of a long quote, but he gives it really well balanced and true. And he says this, Daniel assumes that human beings make real decisions which do shape history. So yes, you have a role. Yet that human decision making does not necessarily have the last word in history. Daniel affirms the sovereignty of God in history, sometimes working via the process of human decision making and sometimes working despite it. Also, Daniel clearly portrays people being given amazing dignity within creation. I love this. There's honor, there's respect, there's esteem that is shown within these portions of Scripture. And this really goes back to the beginning, to Genesis. If you look at chapter 1, verse 26 to 28, it tells us people have been given responsibility to rule. We sometimes talk about dominion. You and I have been given responsibility to rule. We have dominion. And then I want to raise this profound point that Ernest Lucas raises. He says, the witness of Daniel is that until the end comes, divine sovereignty normally operates through human rulers. Do you see that? You see, in chapter 2, the king has considerable power as ruler, but God works through Nebuchadnezzar to actually display his wisdom, his power, his knowledge, and his sovereignty. But as the rest of Daniel does show, and I want to give you the balance here as well, the rest of Daniel shows us that God holds rulers accountable in their excessive pride in chapter 5 and chapter 7. In other words, it doesn't mean to say they can do whatever they can. God says it comes to a point because of your pride. Now I'm judging 
And therefore, you have God actually doing certain things. Nevertheless, the fact remains, God clearly wants to exercise his sovereignty through these leaders. A third thing that we can apply. Circumstances regarding governments, nations, individuals might be dire and even life-threatening. However, God still remains in control and will have the final victory. There are places in the world at this very moment before I finish, some Christian would have died. Fact. We sit here in relative freedom in the UK. There are places where you cannot even talk about Jesus. So this becomes very important. You see, Daniel 2 shows us God is present and will in the future overrule human evil. Moreover, he will have the final victory over evil irrespective of its form in governments, nations, and individuals. Even as Daniel, who experienced Jerusalem falling, and he with thousands of Jews ended in exile, and so it would seem on the face of it, evil is winning. God remains absolutely sovereign over human affairs. Though it might seem... That is the end of the world because of evil. It's not. You see, chapter 2 emphatically states that every kingdom of government will fall. And the kingdom of God alone will triumph and rule. That's the picture that the dream, the interpretation that the dream was given to the king. That one day the stone will become a mountain and all kingdoms will bow. All knees will confess that he is Lord, irrespective of how they were in this life. If they chose to be evil, that's the future. It's coming. It's your choice. Pick a side. That's the message of Scripture. Have faith in God. There's life for you. And so really, this was a great encouragement to those exiles in Daniel's day because they were facing persecution, oppression. That's the reality. Revelation 11, verse 15, says something to you and I. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There's going to be a day when this is true. That's what John the Apostle told us. He was given the revelation by Christ himself. You go and read chapter 1. It wasn't John's fanciful footwork or words. It was the wonderful revelation that Christ gave him. You see, we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's what Hebrews 12 says us. It tells us that. Does Daniel 2 not give us heightened meaning to our prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What? Your kingdom come. It does. Fourthly, Daniel shows us that out of his relationship with God in prayer, wisdom flows as a gift from God to him. Interesting, Daniel started with a conversation. He did not start with learning. Tremper Longman says this, The divine origin of wisdom means that its foundation wisdom is not a lesson to be learned, but a relationship to be enjoyed. That's where we start. We start in relationship with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, 
And out of that, everything else flows. You see, marvelously biblical wisdom declares to us that the power is available to us that's greater than we are and is beyond us. And that's the relationship with Jesus Christ. So let me ask you straight. Are you in relationship with Jesus Christ? And if you are, is that a consistent or is that an erratic relationship? You need to answer that question and if need be, make some changes. Fifthly, no matter what happens in this life, because of evil, remember God's character, wisdom, omnipotence, omniscience, and sovereignty. You and I have to remember who we are following. Who are we serving? Who is this God who we love, adore, and obey? It's got to be uppermost in our minds as we go through things in life. You see, in the process of being mindful of God's character, God expects of us to live in a way that honors Him no matter what. One of Daniel's key messages is that God's people are encouraged to hold fast to their faith during times of oppression and persecution, and He promises final restoration. That's part of the book. People were going through a horrific, terrible time, and He was saying, You've got to hold fast in your faith. You see, we should rejoice that Daniel and his three friends were faithful and survived the burning furnace in chapter 3. Or the lion's den, the famous story. As a child in Sunday school, I remember, Daniel in the lion's den. Oh, how exciting. Growing up in Africa, they had a bit of a different reality because lions can totally do something else to you. They're not your friendly little neighborhood chihuahua. And yes, even as we rejoice about all of this, and they actually survived this, many Jews didn't. History tells us Jews died because of oppression and persecution. And Daniel holds this hope out to them. He says they will experience final restoration and a personal physical resurrection as declared in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. Do you hear God's care? If I ask you to pay the ultimate price, I will see you soon. John's interpretation. You will experience the resurrection. You see, in the same light, sometimes the cost for following and serving Christ today may vary. But at other times, it's going to cost you everything. Revelation twelve eleven. we love to say this. They overcame him. Who's the him? The enemy. By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. A lady in South Africa came to see me with a friend, and she told me how her husband had been shot and killed because he was carrying the business money on the way to the bank. Christians, both of them, and she said, what about this verse? And then I had to say the second part. You remember the first and the second part, but there's a third part. They did not love their lives to the death. There's a moment that God chooses for each and every one of us. Some of us will be dying in our beds. Old age, that's normal. Others we will not. God alone knows. That's all I'm trying to say. But this truth becomes a reality and it actually can help us 
as we really face all these things in life. Now, irrespective of all of that which I've just said, in the end, we will be saved. That's the good news. The, the irrespective of how we leave this planet, what plan God has worked out in our lives, we will be saved. In conclusion, God's wisdom in Daniel 2 reveals many truths. So let me just highlight a few as we close. He alone has wisdom, power, knowledge, and is sovereign. Notice the word alone. Secondly, he alone controls kings, kingdoms, nations, individual, all of history. Thirdly, his kingdoms will come His kingdom will come in the Son of Man and grow from a stone to a mountain. We discussed that. You and I sit here today because 11 men chose to obey a Savior in Israel. And here we sit today in England, worshiping with 2.3 billion others. Fourthly, his kingdom will one day in the future bring an end to all other kingdoms and governments. So the challenge to us today is to not think it's the end of the world And I'm talking especially to the younger generation. I was listening to Radio 4 and they were saying there's this angst, anxiety younger people have because they look at us who are a bit more advanced in age and say, you've messed up my planet. (laughs) They've got a point. Got to say that to you. And so they have this anxiety about the future. I'm saying when we see the ice glaciers melting, diseases threatening humanity, as we just had recently with COVID. As we see upheaval in governments like Russia's bloodthirsty war in Ukraine. As we see, and we heard recently, of governments being overthrown, democratically elected in Africa. And we start looking at that and we start thinking, evil is winning the day in our communities and families. I'm saying to you, don't think it's the end of the world. You see, we are called to do two things. First, we have to remember who God is and his character, wisdom, power, knowledge, and sovereignty in, on the big grand scale of governments, but also on your own scale and the life that you live. And secondly, we need to remember we are to be faithful no matter what. Let's do that. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Ronan.